Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our guest, comedian Stuart Lee. The pawnbroker roared, and so did the landlord. The scene was so crazy, wasn't it? Both were so glad to watch me destroy what I had. Pain sure brings out the best in people, doesn't it? Why didn't he just leave me if he didn't want to stay? Why did you have to treat me so bad? Did it have to be that way? Now you stand here expecting me to remember something you forgot to say. Yeah, and you, I see you're still with her. Well, that's fine, because she's coming on so strange, can't you tell? Somebody had better explain. She's got her iron chain. I'd do it, but I just can't remember how. You talk to her. She's your lover now. I already assume that we're in the felony room, but I ain't a judge. You don't have to be nice to me. But please tell that to your friend in the cowboy hat. You know, he keeps on saying everything twice to me. You know, I was straight with you. You know, I never tried to change you in any way. You know, if you didn't want to be with me, that you could, you didn't have to stay. Now you stand here saying you forgive and forget. Honey, what can I say? Yeah, you. You just sit around and ask for ashtrays. Can't you reach? I see you kiss her on the cheek every time she gives a speech with her picture books of the pyramid and her postcards of Billy the Kid. Why must everybody bow? You better talk to her about it. You're her lover now. Oh, everybody that cares is going up the castle stairs. But I'm not up in your castle, honey. It's true. I just can't recall San Francisco at all. I can't even remember El Paso. Uh, Honey, you, you never had to be faithful. I didn't want you to grieve. Why was it so hard for you, if you didn't want to be with me, just to leave? Now you stand here while your finger's going up my sleeve, and you... Just what do you do, anyway? Ain't there nothing you can say? She'll be standing on the bar soon with a fish head and a harpoon and a fake beard plastered on her brow. You better do something quick. She's your lover now. <laughs> wow. Mm, okay, such then. a good lyric, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, people like to say Dylan's a poet, and I don't necessarily think that being a poet is a good requisite for being a songwriter, because mm-hmm. songwriting is about a different thing, about repetition, and is it nice, does it feel good in there, but, you know, does it work as a thing that speaks clearly to everyone? But this is one of the occasions where he is both a poet and a songwriter. It's a great piece of poetry and a great lyric as well. And it's damn funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's not necessarily him, of course, so I suspect it is the main character. But I like the fact that he's confident enough. He's not trying to give a good account of himself. A lot of songs by men about their relations with women are Mm. self-justifying. And in this, he clearly dislikes himself as much as her. And the man that she's gone out with, who he he sees as weak for having put up with her. I think he dislikes, he's going through that period where he dislikes everything and everybody. I mean, he's just, it's like a machine gun. He's just like killing everybody. He would kill everybody. I mean, it's helpful if you're a fan, because there's so much footage from that period, 65, 66, of him crammed into hotel rooms Mm. with loads of beatnik hangers on who want to be in the orbit of Dylan, reaching over things, cigarette ash dropping everywhere. (laughs) Donovan's probably there. (laughs) And that is exactly where I imagine that happening. The party in the hotel room is just about to turn nasty. It's also, I think it's a it's a song that is perfectly formed and totally unfinished at the same yeah, time, if that's yeah. not a contradiction. It never quite gets where it's going to be, and then it stops. Even the take breaks down. Yeah. And if you listen to all of the takes, that's about as close as you get to releasable product. You know, that's one of the things that I really love about him. I came to him late in life, you know, mm. and I wasn't a teenage Dylan fan. What I like about it is 
there isn't a perfect take. In the world of product and content, everyone's looking for the thing. And most of Dylan's songs, they're like a stream that you dip into at some point. And this one's an ideal example of that. The other two or three versions of it are knocking around like 90 seconds or the mm -hmm. whole tempo is totally mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. And this is unfinished. It's the best one. Mm -hmm. It's as good as we're going to get. When I last saw him at Hyde Park, the casual uh, audience member found it as frustrating as usual. <laughs> and near me, there was a woman holding up a phone doing a Shazam thinking that she would be able to work out <laughs> what the song was. And of course, it just shows you what an anathema it is to the modern mind, that something should be performed that is fluid and doesn't bear relationship. But yeah. Obviously, Shazam's not going to pick that up, because no. that song, as he did it that night, has never existed in that form, and will never exist in that form again. And it's it sets up a sort of primacy of the experience at yeah. that moment, which we've we've lost that. And it's like it's Alexa perfect. saying, hmm, I don't think I can identify that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's not Bob Dylan as I expect to hear him. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, yeah. There's a story now when you first heard this song, because I read about it. Yeah, I can't date it exactly. I was a Dylan sceptic. As a teenager, I always liked other versions of his songs. Other people You mean done. covers, yeah, yeah. Yeah, covers, yeah. You know, like uh, Danny and Dusty and Television doing Knocking on Heaven's Door and uh, I think, you know, various things. Dream Syndicate doing um, Blind Willie McTell. Before mm. it was even officially released, I just thought, what an amazing song. And I didn't even know uh. that it was his because no one did, you know. Then a number of men in the 90s insisted to me first of all when i was touring with uh, pete bainham who's now a big screenwriter in hollywood polishes up inadequate comedy scripts <laughs> he um he would was always playing dylan and it's sort of you know i think without i can see it's good work but it just i couldn't get over it and um then the comedian simon munnery who is probably the bob dylan of stand-up i can't replace the exact date i know that i was not living anywhere because I was sleeping on his floor at some point in the mid-90s, and if you'd ever seen his floor, you'd have to be in fairly desperate straits to want to sleep on it. A sort of sticky, filth-covered mess with bits of rolling tobacco and mucus all over it. And I was trying to sleep, and he wouldn't let me sleep because he wanted to convince me that Bob Dylan was brilliant. And the way he did it was by playing this over and over again. What year did that come out on the bootleg? On the, the bootleg. Box? 1991. 91. It must yeah. have been about the mid-90s. Something. Was, he was playing this over and over again, and dancing round and round and acting out the words. And uh, in the end, it sort of clicked. And I think it was helpful that it wasn't a Dylan song that you were familiar with. It didn't come with any baggage. Mm. You could, you could, the, the music's so powerful in this. The, the way that group sort of are racing ahead of themselves and listening to each other to try and keep up and intuiting the changes and stuff were fantastic. I was listening to all of the takes this morning just yeah. on the way in and the final take, so there's this take, then he, he thinks fuck it and just does it on the piano by himself, then he tries it once more with the band, Little B, but the band with a big B too, apart from the drummer. And he's so frustrated, he's just saying, can we just do one take with no one playing anything fancy? Yeah. Just Let's just do it all together. I just yeah. want to hear it all together. Yeah. And then... That's it, That's he gives it. up. And it never happens. Never I mean, happens. yeah, that, that set of, I bought that box set of all the 65, 66 oh, outtakes, yeah. you know. It's the most self-indulgent thing I've ever done in my life. It's the most expensive <laughs> cultural item I've ever bought, you know. And in fact, some Dylan fan comedians, Nish Kumar and David O'Doherty, rang me up suddenly one day from uh, Ireland where they were on tour. And Nish is a huge Dylan fan because they were trying to work out if anyone they knew would have bought that box set. And they rang me up and said, guess that I would have done. But of course, like a lot of people, I didn't listen to it really. And it was in lockdown, in those long nights of lockdown, when you're just wondering whether civilization's ever going to return. Mm -hmm. I listened to it all systematically, and it was 
absolutely worth it to be mm. in that process, you know, song to song. You know, absolutely incredible thing. That's, I'm so glad that exists, you know. A, a great thing to be able to basically, basically in the studio for the creation of those two or three albums, aren't mm. you? And, you know, each take. Well, it was like that Beatles documentary, but they would get oh, back. God, when, yeah. So when they, so they, you know, you're trying, you're yeah. trying, you're trying, you're trying. And of course, Peter Jackson does you the service of putting this on the screen, but you get the same experience listening yeah. to the cutting edge. You think, oh, fuck, this is the take. This That's is the one. the one. This is the one that I've known my together. whole life. And yeah. I've just heard how they got there and everything's yeah. suddenly fallen into place. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a privilege. And you kind of don't really get that in the same way now because things are assembled in a different way. They're not necessarily people in a space sitting around trying to figure out a thing. So did you go back after that? Oh, God, yeah. And I was I was lucky as well because about that time, without really planning to, I saw a couple of great Dylan gigs. First of all, at Glastonbury. Actually, the first one I saw was the Phoenix in 95, Phoenix Festival in Stratford, which was brilliant because there was a great little... I'd been told that you know Bob Dylan always played his songs incomprehensibly and he was dreadful and whatever. And there was some kind of weird spat at the Phoenix where it's hard to imagine now. You can only understand it in terms of the amount of cocaine that must have been knocking around in the Britpop era, where Suede, who had made two albums, insisted on headlining over Bob Dylan. And their, t- their top guitarist, Bernard Butler, had just left. They were breaking in a new kid. And Dylan weirdly acquiesced, because it's hard to remember now, but his stock wasn't that high, was it? You know, No, and he sort of lost his bottle. He lost his bottle, yeah. Rock so he, the he went on before them. But the deal was that his name would be bigger on the poster. And because he was not headlining, he went out and he did I Want You, All Along the Watchtower, Tears of Rage, Tangled Up in Blue, Rainy Day Women, Mama You've Been On My Mind, One Too Many Mornings, pretty much like on the record, <laughs> to a crowd of like younger people, really, who suddenly went, yeah, those are these amazing songs that we know. He went out and he went, well, if I'm not going to headline, I'm just going to prove that I've got dozens of the greatest songs ever written I'm going to do them in a way that you can understand what they are yeah take that like, Sway. <laughs> and then Swade came on and it started to rain and it all looked a bit silly you know and then in between then and the next time I saw him I think uh, Time Out of Mind came out was that 97 or mm-hmm. something yeah and uh, then I saw him at Glastonbury and Time Out of Mind was the first Dylan album that I bought as a fan as it came out and um, it's still one of my absolute favourites so it was great to see him off the back of that, where he was starting to believe in himself again. So that was a period really when I, and then I went back and became one of those people that thinks they have to have everything, even, although there are some periods of the mid-80s, to be honest, where I, I don't necessarily buy the, download the bootlegs, but mm. um, everything else. You yeah, know, you're among been, friends here, don't worry. It's yeah. safe space. <laughs> There was um, this is a big jump, but I've been reading a lot of your stuff, watching yeah. a lot of your stuff. I came across a uh, an episode of Comedy Vehicle. Oh it yeah, it was a third series. Yeah, where you do what you say is your Bob Dylan song. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And yeah. so it's a song about the toaster that always burns yeah, the toast. Yeah. And uh, I loved it because a you had you were accompanied by a banjo player, Nick Pin. Yeah, fantastic. Which, because I, it, great banjo, but you don't normally think of banjo and you think of Bob Dylan, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I thought was great. Well, I just said to Nick, "What do you want to do on this?" And he said that. Really, it just it came together. Initially, it was just me doing lines from observational comedy over an acoustic guitar. And then I thought, if you do it in that voice, it starts to sound like a sort of talking blues. You know what I mean? Right. And um, but I think there's a bit there's a bit in that. You reminded me because I saw that again the other day for some reason, where I very self consciously aped the phrasing of uh, "You ask for ashtrays, can't you reach?" In one of the oh, one of the one of the l- l- lyrics. Yeah. If you want to look at it, it comes. <laughs> I can't remember did, what did it you is. Break, you, presumably, you broke it in on tour. 
Yeah, I do. Because on, yeah. the, on the live recording, you know, for television, yeah. it's the one where the guy stands up just yeah. before oh, the yeah, last yeah, verse. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we never hear the last verse. No, well, that's just... gone. You know you know what? That's the interesting thing that I sort of thought with Comedy Vehicle is um, I was very lucky to get another go at doing comedy on telly. You know, I mean, I was probably 40-odd by the time it was happening, you know, and, and I, I sort of thought that telly had spent a lot of time trying to catch stand-up it's what we were talking about 10 minutes ago is like this finished product and I thought well I'll run it in on tour and then we'll do it twice in a really live room that isn't like the, a TV studio mm. and you know what happens is the show and yeah. Uh, yeah so there was a third verse of that that was never recorded because a, a man stood up well, it might have been recorded the other night actually because we did two goes at everything but the man standing up and interrupting it just made for a much funnier yeah. end than uh, so I'm not saying I'm like Bob Dylan, but I do think that sometimes the imperfect version has its own charm. You know? Well, it was a bit like She's Your Lover Now because yeah. the, the last verse never It just runs himself. out, yeah. But, you know, you get the idea. And I thought it was funnier, you know, the fact that a man couldn't wait just one minute more to finish. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, he's a great musician, Nick. He, I, I sort of mess about with these things when I do music. They're always in the key of D. I think, oh, I can't do this again. And then he turns up and puts some top line over it on fiddle or banjo or, uh, you know, on an Appalachian dulcimer or something, and just brilliant. Yeah. But was that your idea was to to do a Bob Dylan song that wasn't quite a Bob Dylan song? Yeah, 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 yeah. And how did people take it on tour? Like, oh, did they fine, moan yeah. when they heard Bob Dylan? I mean, no, is there no, a crossover? People, or? No, no, it's great. It was good, yeah. It was fine. I mean, you know, he is a known figure. Although, although again, surprisingly, it's weird, isn't it? It's also it's known and unknown. You know, sometimes you talk to nephews and nieces and they've literally never heard of him. They don't understand why you're seeing him in Hyde Park. When he was last in Hyde Park, I really wanted to go with my kids, you know, who were nine and 12, 13 at the time. And I thought it would be a good dad thing to give them, even if they didn't like it at the time. Because yeah. it's sort of like they're living... I mean, he's one of the absolute greats. Like, he's like they're alive when William Blake is or Mozart or one of the... You know, I just thought if they yeah. can think when they're old that they've seen him. But I've been to see Neil Young in Hyde Park a couple of years before and it was really difficult because, again, I'm not a household name, but when, when there's that many thousand people there... I get interrupted every 90 seconds, you know, for a selfie. Yeah. And I couldn't get into it. And I I got these Dylan tickets and I thought, this is going to be absolutely awful. And luckily, because I'd made that Nightingales film, that documentary, somebody that was related to someone in it was working for the company that were putting it on. I said, look, I've bought tickets. I'm not trying to blag it. But can I get in that front bit? Because mm. otherwise... In the Golden Circle, over it's called, yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, I was one of the greatest nights of my life was mm. so happy to be able to see him with the kids my daughter because i've been playing it a lot she actually recognized some song that everyone was going what's that what's this and she went it's uh the times they're changing or something and everyone went, oh, yes, the girl <laughs> it. but i felt it was so great to be able to see him i hadn't seen him for about 10 years prior to that yeah. and i felt like i'd done one good dad thing at least to go to that I did the same. I took my daughter to see Dylan in about 2007, so she yeah. would have been about 12. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I even bought her a T-shirt and I just was gently saying, you may not care about yeah, this, yeah. you know. <laughs> Your mother's been dragged along mm. to these things. She doesn't care about it. You might not care about it, but one day you'll be glad that I took yeah. you. And I think that's happened, you know. Yeah. 
and I, and I did both my kids actually at Hyde Park with Bruce Springsteen for the same same reason. I said, right, you know, right. you've got to you got to see him, and yeah. you might not like it. But I don't know we'll why it's it so important that music be sort of understood by your loved ones. Yeah, because there's certain things like books. Like I know that my my wife and I sit there reading every night in bed, and we read different sorts of books. Every once in a while, we say you should really try this, and we sort of like read a page or a two, and we never. Our book tastes don't really coincide, yeah. and that doesn't really bother us. But it's the music stuff when we say you've got to hear this, and the other person yeah. doesn't quite get it. Well, I'm I'm very grateful to the people that insisted to me that I had to hear Bob Dylan, because um, I was really skeptical, and I, I was let me I was brainwashed into it by Simon Munnery during a period of <laughs> emotional and physical weakness. It's <laughs> <And>, um, <laughs> like it's a bad thing. <laughs> like when they used to play Jethro Tull at General Noriega or something, <laughs> like to break his spirit. Yeah. But um, you know, I and I don't know what I'd do without it now because it's such a great way of making sense of loads of things. Like you know that um, album, Time Out of Mind, that song Highlands, is mm. so great in terms of. Like, I often think about it where. Now that I'm a sort of minor celebrity that some people can't believe they've met you and other people don't know who you are at all and they're weird with you, either way it's strange, but <laughs> that song's so brilliant. He basically goes in this bar and he, yeah. the woman behind the bar doesn't know he's Bob Dylan and yeah. he's just really, it's just happy to have a talk with her and she just thinks he's some old painter and the relief from the prison of his celebrity. So I think that is him. Yeah. Other songs he's not writing as himself. I like the shifting of identities. And I also like the fact that I think why he provokes such ire and annoyance is because he's managed to get what is essentially a form of art into a populist space. When it's something is is art and does the things art is supposed to do rather than what entertainment is supposed to do, people tend to get annoyed with it. And he's, but he's used kind of, um, you know, he used the 60s as a Trojan horse to get this quite strange, free-flowing, literary kind of device musical device into popular culture and uh, it's an amazing thing and I sort of think stand-up's a good Trojan horse for that obviously it's nothing on the same level as what Dylan's done but you can kind of if you give something the shape of stand-up people don't often realise that they're watching something that is like a piece of mm. art mm. but if they suspect it might be art they tend to get quite annoyed with it <laughs> well to, to, I've got to say and this is this is quite a long build up to this question so forgive me but to the casual analytical observer, there are similarities. You know, well, I, that's probably because I've copied him. Well, yeah, but it's like, I mean, I was, I, cause I've been wanting to say this to you for, for a number of years, and I'll explain why in a minute. And I thought, no, I can't, I can't talk to, to Stu about this because it's just, it's going to make him curl up as someone tries to analyse his patter. And then I watched you do it to Rob Lloyd in, um, in the Nightingale film, oh, yeah, King, yeah. King Rocker. And I thought, oh, no, okay, the gloves are off, I'm going to do it. Well, so, Rob was very funny in that because Rob was is extreme. Rob Robert Lloyd, who I made this film about, the Nightingale mm. singer, he's extremely resistant to the idea that he's put any work into what he's doing. Well, but clearly, he's put a lot of work into it because when he goes to his house, he's got a massive system of yeah. where he files all his ideas away and everything. But he's completely d didn't ever want to talk yeah, about. But it. But this is yeah. what artists do, and particularly yeah. you know Dylan. Anyway, so I mean, one of the first times Kerry and I met socially before, long before we had a podcast, was we went to see you. Really? In yeah, in oh. November. 2016. Right, right. So it was the month that Donald Trump was elected. Oh, yeah. For the first time. Yeah. Uh, just in case this goes, yeah. <laughs> you know, something's happened. Oh, for fuck's sake. Um, anyway. And so that would have been the content provider tool. Yeah, 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 yeah content yeah. provider. And it was very, very soon after Brexit. So I yeah. was very aware that you were delivering this stuff to a country that was, by its very nature, divided right down the middle. Mm. And the show was divided right down the middle. And everything seemed to be sort of 
binary. And I thought, well, this will be interesting how you kind of how you do this. And you did this fantastic routine where both halves mirrored each other. And the first half was Brexit. The second half was Trump. And it built to the punchline of not everyone who voted for yeah, yeah, Brexit yeah. slash Trump is a racist. Some of them are cunts. Yeah. And that's a very shocking word, and I apologise if anyone has children in the car. Um, and it's you're Christmas shocked. Day. Anyway, it's <laughs> Christmas Day, I know. Uh, <laughs> we're putting this out. But that's a very shocking, divisive word. And I thought, okay, so there's a bit of um, deliberate division. And then, obviously, we are talking about a divided audience, but we're also talking about a Stuart Lee audience, where they're going to be far more forgiving of this stuff. And then, you know, you took pot shots at Game of Thrones, and then, you know, everyone was laughing. And then you turned around and you said... Tell you what I really hate. It's people under 40. <laughs> and I saw all these people who'd been blithely laughing in their very knowing middle-class way, and I include myself, and all of your material for the last hour, just going, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. he's talking about me. And then they couldn't do anything, because you can say my, my opinion about Brexit has shifted, mm. but you can't say my age has shifted in the no. last 10 minutes. I am, definitely, I am definitely the person he's talking about. And I came out, and I said to Kerry, I said... The only person I've ever seen knowingly divide his audience like that from a stage and enjoy it is Bob Dylan. Well, I th- before I saw Dylan do that, I, I'd seen the, one of the one of the few musicians I liked more than Bob Dylan was The Fall, mm. and um, mm. obviously that was. Although again, there's so many similarities. Although it would, you'd have to have a fairly broad taste to understand that. But Marky e. Smith had the same sort of thing, and then there were great comedians that did it as well, like. Um, Jerry Sadovitz, who's a subject of a lot of controversy and confusion at the moment, but to me, his thing was, and I haven't seen the new show, I don't know what he's doing now, but was always that at the point where you thought he wasn't coming for you, he then would come for you, and, and um, everyone was included in it. Although, weirdly, since you saw that show, I have a slightly different attitude now. I kind of think the core of my audience, which, if you want to stereotype them, is sort of Guardian-reading liberals, all the things that they value have been destroyed and taken away from them and are under threat. The environment, their European nationality, the English National Opera, the BBC, Channel 4, access to education, the Erasmus programme, cooperation between European states and cultural capacity, all these things. I kind of feel they've suffered enough, so I go a little bit, I go a little bit easier on them now. And I mean, I know you both saw the new show, but I was, yeah. I was definitely, I was trying to make it, for now, more fun. And I look forward to a point where balance has been restored in society to the point where I can give those people a going over again. But at the moment, I feel it's like picking them up off the floor of an alley yeah. where they've been beaten up and punching them in the face again. It just yeah. doesn't seem fair. I was saying really. to Luke uh, before we, uh, yeah. we had coffee before this that I really appreciate it. There, there's a five-minute rant, at least, with the night we saw yeah. it. Uh, basically, what we're all feeling in our hearts, a five-minute anti-Tory yeah. rant, which yeah. is just pure invective, pure anger, it beautiful in its simplicity and just fury. And that was a, a little gift that you gave to the audience, yeah, I yeah, felt. Yeah. And I took it that way. Yeah. Because I'm like that every morning when I read the paper. I'm sort of yeah. like... Although, although that may have changed now. Because, I mean, you got to think, I started writing this in August. As we're recording this now, it's November. I'm on the third Tory government of the show. I started writing it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So there's this 20-minute, you know, the, the topical bit at the top of the show. I'm on the third 20-minute section of it now. And the James who texts me is creating this folder of all the abandoned topical <laughs> routines. Because by the time this show's finished touring, which is April 2024, I mean, I know, I've got through a lot of stuff. In the Hopefully the, the back 90 minutes of it will hold together. But that front mm. end, it's like... Uh, 
every every day I get up and think which bit's fallen now because the turnover is so fast, you know. And I, I mean, we're currently on the November government and I'll, I don't know what the December government will be when I come to write yeah. that. I've got to say it's called Basically just because that's a, that's a plug. That's our yeah. gift to you. Oh, thank you. And you're touring around the country from January 2023 yeah, yeah. just after this goes out yeah. to, and then uh, until the end of May and then you're at the Royal Festival Hall. And yeah, then I have a bit of autumn off and then I'll do it the spring of 2024 as well. Did you have any good Liz Truss stuff? Because I yeah, missed I did. that. that went, yeah. Oh, was that gone by the time you came? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I did. I had a, well, I had stuff about, you know, four or five members of a Liz Truss cabinet. The first one to go down was on the Thursday before the kids' half-term. Quasi Kuateng had gone out about five minutes on him. And I said to the audience, when I left the house, this was still <laughs> current. So yeah. I'm going to do this for the last time. <laughs> then over, I had two weeks off for half-term with the kids the whole of that cabinet then fell apart and then I started again from scratch something it's interesting I'm doing, still doing stuff about Nadim Zawi for some reason the audience found the idea of Nadim Zawi being a qualities minister which he was under Liz Truss much funnier than the idea of him being minister without portfolio which he is now which I think suggests that the very idea of the word equality connected with that administration is funny <laughs> in of itself but it's yeah it's, a sh- it's shifting under you And I, but again I'm lucky because I can parlay that back into it's not fair the frustration on me why should i have to keep writing all this stuff because they like to laugh at me they like to laugh at me and the idea that it's hard for me to do this job and it's a struggle so you know i'm happy to play up to that but yeah actually i just remembered you did take the piss out of the audience at the end that, right. that when we saw it yeah. that long you know there's always that tends to be now well for a long time yeah. you've done a a never-ending sequence at yeah, the end. Yeah, I yeah. think sequence that you think is never going to end. Yeah, yeah. And the night that we saw it, you did the coming into the office. Oh yeah, that's well, that's that's the end that's of the that basic, show. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And it's great because it yeah. was it was excruciating. Yeah, it was yeah. and and it's meant to be. So you're yeah. not. It's not like it's all lovey dovey. No, no. It's still, it's still stylistically torturous. Yeah, yeah. but um, that bit, funny enough, again. That bit. I just current has got this ten-minute routine about people going to work in the morning. I've had that on the go since 2016. It was in an early version yeah. of um, of the content provider tour. I just couldn't ever land it in the right place. And actually, there wasn't anything wrong with it. It never worked. It was just about where did it sit and what was around it and what had set it up. And that's the kind of thing you notice from those... When you listen to 20 CDs of all the 65, 66 outtakes, sometimes it's the yeah. tiniest thing, little change that makes something work. It's not a massive overhaul. It's just yeah. like... I mean, so what did you change? Do you remember? What, well, it was really just where it sat. You know, it had to be. It was. It's a difficult routine to come back from because it kills the room. Yeah. So it had to be near the end. Yeah. And also, I managed this time around. Well, I don't know if you picked up on it. It's not really flagged up, but part of the show is partly about having a, a diagnosis of a mild mental health condition, and and off the back of that, knowing that about me. The, mm-hmm. the, uh, that routine reads in a more comic, tragic sort of way, I think, than it did before. It's sort of the status of you has changed. Um, so it's just kind of what sets things up, isn't it? Do you ever find yourself wanting to do that Dylan-esque thing of, of sabotaging your own sense of comfort so that you... So it, it's dangerous oh, yeah. and it's kind of edgy I mean, all the time, Absolutely, right? all the time. And again, I didn't, you know, I didn't get that from listening to him, but when I see him, I think I completely understand what's happening there. So I think that you have to develop almost a split personality where sometimes I, it's like I'm above myself and I think, what would happen to him if I tried to make him do this? He won't be able to get out of that. I like to put myself 
in positions where I don't really know what the way out's going to be. I like to make it hard for myself. And I think it's, you know, it's partly seeing people like Dylan listen to him. Also with some of the jazz guys, you know, a story I always tell is about seeing Derek Bailey, the free jazz guitarist at the Royal Festival Hall in the 90s and seeing him, he was wandering about and he walked into the back wall of the Royal Festival Hall because he had his eyes shut and the guitar made this awful noise as he banged it and the jazz festival audience were a bit sort of, oh no, something's gone wrong in the jazz. So he just banged it again into the wall and then that becomes yeah. a thing. So yeah. I kind of think embracing the, the self-sabotage keeps you alive. Th those shows... I mean, you've seen enough of them. You know, they're basically, I've got a story or a structure that has to be resolved. Well, I end up doing them 250 times, some of them. And so you need to put things in that will that will keep it different every night and make it hard for you. I always try and do things that I haven't done before that are difficult for me. And this yeah. one, singing a brief, unaccompanied um, jazz theme tune of an imaginary sitcom, it's yeah. something that I find embarrassing and awkward. I don't really like bantering with the audience, so I've done 20 minutes of that. You know, I sort of try to do stuff that's hard for me. And with you put Dylan, I mean, the last few years, it's hilarious, isn't it? Like a Christmas mm. album, Bing Crosby-type crooning, which he's clearly not equipped to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw him twice last month. Oh, yeah. And I saw him do yeah. the same set list, yeah. you know, the space of four days. Yeah. And the differences were, were enormous. And yeah. the, the second yeah. time he came out, it was the last night he did in London. They, they were doing Watching the River Flow, which they always start with. And... It's a fairly normal blues structure. What can go wrong here? Yeah. And he called to the guitarist go over because something's not right. Yeah. And they carried on vamping until ready mm. and then more and more. And I think three or four minutes passed before he actually started singing. And of course, because it's a blues format, you think he's going to come in on the beat in a fairly regular yeah, place. Yeah. And it goes... What's the matter with me? I don't have much to say. And you think, oh, of all the places you could have come in... You've chosen the most awkward uh, yeah. against the form place. But I thought, well, you're just doing it on purpose because I saw you do it four days ago. You didn't yeah, do it yeah. then. You're doing what, you know, actors talk about Olivier. He's put yeah. stones in his shoes yeah. so he'd feel uncomfortable well, on he's, stage. he's waking himself up. He's waking yeah. the band up. He's waking the audience up. He's trying He's trying a strategy to make it a special one-off. And now people are really confused by that these days. You know, mm. audiences, there's so used to content being delivered as a finished product. Mm. In the in the bit when I talk to the audience every night, I'm doing a, a bit in the current show, which is sort of a parody of the idea that you have to talk to the audience, but I tried to do it for real. I, I, there was a guy in the front row one night, he had a T-shirt on a Fairport convention, who I know quite a lot about. So I had a really long discussion with him for about 12 minutes over the relative merits of different albums. Fairly straight. And what made it funny was it was such an inappropriate thing to do in front of a comedy audience. So we all found it hilarious because it was... And in the end, he was going, well, I don't think you're right about that. You need to be more broad. <laughs> it was really like... And it was, it was so not like entertainment that yeah. it became really funny. Anyway, about a week later, I was in a shop somewhere. A bloke came up to me and I saw you the other night when that Fairport Convention bloke was in. I went, oh, yeah. He goes, yeah, so I'm coming again next week, so I'll look forward to seeing you do that again and see how it works with him. And I went, what do you mean? And he went, well, I'll see, see you know, because uh, how it works yeah. with... Yeah. And I went, well... It, it won't because he was just in that. And he's going, oh yeah, was he? I was going, yeah. He's not a pl plant. He's going, well, we'll see, won't we? Because we never know with you. <laughs> so, but if you logically think about it, 
that, that would mean that he thinks I drive around the country for 18 months with me, the tech guy, James, and a little old bloke who likes airport convention just to like, talk about it. But it, 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 it shows you sort of how magic the stage is. So yeah. I, I had one somewhat similar experience. Yeah. I used to do these one-man shows, and I'd sort of tour yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And I, I did one, actually, at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, oh, right, which I know right. you've played. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. was like a long time. This was like 25, yeah. 30 years yeah. ago. I can't remember. And I was doing this this show and it was a very complicated show it was like a two and a half hour lots of lighting cues and stuff and there was a power cut right at the beginning like i'd only been on stage for like two minutes and the first two minutes of the show is my character just messing around on stage like i had, don't even mm. speak yeah yeah and so the lights went out and and the house lights not the full house like the working lights came up right so everything had changed and i knew i couldn't do the show yeah or i couldn't do the show until the Power was back. back on, yeah. So I said to the, so I had to, you know, break through the fourth yeah, wall. Yeah, yeah. And I said to the stage manager who was, was at the top of the sort of stairs, can you tell me what's happening? And they said, I know, mate. Uh, I'll go check. So then I'm just left on stage. And I said to the audience, and I'm not a great improviser except for this one night. I became a great, and I, I just sort of said, so here it is. This is me talking to you now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they absolutely would not have any of it yeah. because I was in the magic zone. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I spent about five or even ten minutes trying to convince them that this wasn't the show. Mm. And I was getting big laughs because mm, mm. I was playing it completely yeah, straight. Yeah, yeah. And finally I said, look, just say something. You say something to me about what is happening right now. And I'll respond. And there's a show that this isn't the thing you paid to see. Yeah. And somebody said, where'd you get your shoes? Because <laughs> I was wearing these really ugly desert boots. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was the beginning. And then I ended up doing like 45 minutes of what for me was sort of stand-up. Yeah. And then I canceled the evening because the... the, know. the and, it, and you know what? Those things are, when they happen really well and you try and fake them, you know, you can't ever do it again. Although some things I've been doing so long now that they're like up my sleeve, like... You don't tend to see crane flies, daddy long legs, very often, but they do seem to be hanging around in the eaves of a number of theatres. And I have been interrupted on stage by a crane fly three or four times now. And, of course, what they do is they try to find lights. So they fly towards the park, you know, the lights along the front of the stage, and then the shadow gets projected and whatever. First time it happened was in Luton about 15 years ago, so I ended up doing 20 minutes with the with the crane fly. And then when it happened again about three years later, I thought, oh, I've got this... I'm on the, I've done this before. Well, I've not got to the stage of taking them around with me and releasing them. I think that. <laughs> but that again, it's what, yeah. what kind of world you set up. Like on the, you saw the last tour where there's this big forty foot metal and wood shark that falls on me. Yeah. Now there was a fairly serious operator error in um, Lexil on Sea, where it dropped when it wasn't supposed to. Because it's basically that Buster Keaton joke where the house falls on him. Yeah. So I have to sit in the Perfect. area where the mouth is so mm -hmm. that it falls round me when it falls. And it fell early, and it dropped about six inches behind me. And if I'd been six inches back, it would have whacked me on the top of the head, probably killed me, definitely broken my neck and my back. So suddenly this massive thing just falls down, bang. You know when you're on stage, you're kind of not scared of anything. It's weird, like adrenaline yeah. thing. Yeah. So I looked at it, and I went, oh. I said, that's not supposed to happen there. And they all laughed. And I went, no, really, it's not. That nearly killed me, actually. What's supposed to happen is it, I'm supposed to sit in the middle, finish this story, and then it falls, and they're all going, ah. And like they think it's, they think that what I've done is brought an elaborate prop yeah. and used it wrongly as a joke. This is like when De Niro goes on at the end of The King of Comedy and he says, yeah. I've, I've kidnapped Jerry Langford. That's yeah. the only reason I'm yeah, here. And they're going, ha, 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 because no, seriously. Yeah, yeah. I, this is what I've yeah, done. Yeah. But then when it went on telly, people were writing to me going, 
you nearly were killed in Bexhill on Sea. I was going, yeah, I did say on the night. I did tell you. But on the way, so kind of what you want. You what I want ideally is to be able to have something happen in the room that makes it a one-off night, but not to the point where it brings a whole show down with it. And what Dylan's done historically is often brought the whole song down. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I remember seeing him at Finsbury Park where Ron Wood turned up and they clearly hadn't rehearsed anything and he was throwing stuff at him and it was, again, it really woke, woke everyone up in a really good, fun way, you know. But I suppose with, I mean, with you and with Dylan, there are... That's a, not a good, that's really... I no, have to just stop. No, there are many, I have many to just similarities. Because I, one of, I, I'm really careful about comparing things to Dylan because I saw a famous comedian mm. once say that Dylan had said that an artist is always in the process of becoming and yeah. so was he. And I thought, yeah. you really aren't, mate. Yeah, you yeah. really can't say that about yourself because no. he wasn't the sort of, he's not really that kind of artist. But so I'm, I'm very resistant as to As Dylan would, you would deny any similarity. <laughs> well, and Christ would as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, goody. Let's go there. It's Christmas. Come on. But um, <laughs> I was going to say, so yeah, identity. So on stage identity. Because so you're saying something on stage in the character of Stuart Lee, the yeah. persona of Stuart Lee, so that we, so it's 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 got this perfect sweet spot where it sounds credible and it sounds like you, but it's kind of not you. Yeah. Um. So that when you say something to someone, they think, well, you weren't, you it wasn't yeah. really you, was it? Yeah. You say, well, I did tell you. And there's a yeah. really lovely blurring of the lines yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. My my a, a relative got really annoyed with me at a wedding recently who had voted on a particular issue in a very different way to me and was angry about the way in which I described people that had voted like that. And I was sort of saying, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that to you personally. I wouldn't be that rude. But you weren't. I was going, not really. It was that other person. But again, I think Dylan did what a lot of people have to do, which is he created a construct from really early on, didn't yeah. he? I mean, that yeah. whole... Ca- uh, when was he ever himself? And then Never. he tells these it, stories about running away with the circus and... Bob you know, Dylan is a creation. creation. Yeah. And, and uh, as were all sorts of people. And that actually allowed him a real freedom. But then what you also see is through the gores of that creation, incredible moments of intimacy and honesty, like in that Highland song, yeah. where you think, God, he's just told us what it's like to be him in a way that no interview ever has or anything. So the character is a really useful thing, and the character of who he is in the songs changes all the time, like uh, on Blood on the Tracks, you know, that song about where he's going on about, oh, she was working in a topless place and all mm-hmm. that. That guy's some sort of, like, just funny deadbeat, but like he's like a character from an Italian comedy who mm-hmm. things happen to, you know, in a picaresque way, and he doesn't really interpret them, he just lives through them, and um, that isn't Dylan. And yet it's written in the first person. Yeah. This happens all the time in his his songs. And uh, I, I mean, I, the, the, yeah, the, the creation of the character is very liberating. I after I did a I did a fairly traumatizing show in two thousand and five, which was about some stuff that happened to me. I did it about thirty or forty times, which is as many times as anybody wanted to see me in those days. But after that tour, I realised I couldn't really do this at a greater level unless I could put some distance between me and this person. And a few years ago, might be 10 years ago now, John Bishop asked me to be on a bill that he was putting together at the uh, Royal Albert Hall. And I foolishly accepted, despite the fact that all the other acts on were the sort of acts his fans would have known, and I wasn't. And I went out. Everyone else had been projected onto the screens, and the screens went on for me. So I went out and I went, why is there no screens on for me? I started moaning about that. I was going, it just, it just doesn't seem... 
I mean, I don't mind, but because with my audience, they would have found that really funny. You know, yeah. I was going, why is Roger Daltrey putting this? It was Teenage Cancer Trust. I was going, if he wants medicine, why is he voting Brexit? Because they want to sell the NHS. <laughs> it doesn't even make any sense. And all the people were really hating it, right? And it absolutely died. No, no oh. two ways about it. Oh. No one's ever died at a Teenage Cancer Trust benefit before. There's such goodwill in the room. <laughs> but about seven minutes in, I was supposed to do ten. I thought... Well, it's not really happening to me. It's happening to him. And that's what would happen to him if he went on here and did that. <laughs> and it had done. So I'd, I'd still, it was still a good gig, really, because yeah, it was true. You it's know. like when you're, you know, talking about the, the death and decapitation of Richard the Hamster Hammond. Yeah. You know, not a real hamster. And yeah. you can hear the, the room as you get darker and darker and darker go, um, not going to laugh at this. Yeah. Not going to laugh at this, and then and then cheer at a bit. They sort of applaud politically because yeah. you said something wider about about hang, the, na- the nature on. of fame or yeah, cynicism yeah, or yeah. something. But then because the, we saw that show as well, and, and my wife hated it. She was oh, thinking, right, right. I like Richard Hammond. I, 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 what this isn't funny at all. And I've listened to it again and again <laughs> recently, just this week. And what it really, really nails is the anti woke movement before that existed. Yeah. You know, you're you're lambasting top gear at the time, but actually now it could be the concern. Well that's government. why in the last show, I mean some people complained about it, but in um what was it called? Yeah, in Tornado, mm. I actually did a rego of a bit I did twenty years ago, which was back when everyone used to complain about political correctness. Mm. It was the exact same things yeah. happening. Except the difference now is it's government Strategy, part exactly. of a government strategy exactly. to put this nonsense into the into poison the water supply with exactly. this rubbish. You but know. I, I watched Tornado uh, again the other day, yeah. and I was really fascinated by the uh, the Dave Chappelle routine, but particularly the bit where you do the Dave Chappelle, or it's kind of like a Barry White voice. Yeah, and I thought that was you know you've done so many dangerous uh, bits, mm. but I thought that was of the of your most recent stuff really wonderfully dangerous. Well, you know, that something happened there, right, which I hadn't anticipated, which is that, okay, so first of all, the, the, I've been, a, I've seen online people saying oh, I'm racist for saying he'd got rotisserie chicken, but he had, right, and I went in the theatre and it stank of chicken and there was loads of rotisserie chicken This backstage. was in his, in his rider, they said. Yeah, in his rider, yeah. 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 Although I think it was for one of the other acts that was on with him, to be fair, but, okay. so there was rotisserie chicken. Then I started thinking about, and what I was thinking about for that, it was two things, a sort of seduction songs, you know, where yeah. there's a guy, and it's normally like a Barry White kind yeah. of voice, and he's saying, I've got all these things for you, honey, you know. So I was doing that sort of voice. I Also, it's funny you've mentioned them twice now, there's a song by the Dream Syndicate, who was where I first heard um, Blind Willie McTell, and Steve Wynn is a huge uh, Dylan fan, actually, and he writes in different personas like Dylan does. And in fact, as soon as that 20-minute that track came out, under lockdown, the next day, Steve Wynn from a Dream Syndicate online did the whole an acoustic reading of the whole thing. He must have nailed it overnight, and it was great. Oh, most foul, yeah, but um, they got this song, John Coltrane Stereo Blues, and I listened to it as a teenager and didn't really. I mean, I liked it, but it's about a man, and he's saying, "Look, I've got this record, I've got some wine, I've got uh, all, I've got everything you like, so you've got to give me what I am owed." And it's it's really interesting post Me Too because it's like a seduction song, but actually the character is this man who thinks that. He's lavished these things on this woman, therefore, uh, mm-hmm. he, you know, and so, and that's not Steve Wynn, that's writing in character. Mm. So, and, and actually, when I was improvising that routine originally, I found myself quoting from that song. So I thought, oh shit. The first night I did it, I ended up quoting from John Coltrane's Stereo Blues. And bizarrely, Russ Tolman of the 80s Americana band True West was in the audience at the Soho Theatre. And obviously, he'd emailed Steve Wynn <laughs> and said, this bloke's like got. <laughs> must have known him so I quickly got in touch and I went 
Look, I'm a massive fan. I've quoted these lyrics without meaning to, but it really works. So I'll either take them out or you can say it's all right and then we'll do, I'll credit you or something down the line. So he said, no, I'll leave it in. It's funny. So to me, all that was in there. But there were a couple of people that said, it's racist because you're doing this sort of, um, this kind of black American yeah, voice. Whereas to me, yeah. it was... Um, because those, that tends to be the idiom of those songs where a guy is saying, I've filled the jacuzzi up, I've got, you know. Yeah. And um, then afterwards, I, then it took on a different life because the justification for all the uh, reactionary Dave Chappelle stuff now and for acts like that has become, well, you should be allowed to say anything. Mm. Then I thought, weirdly, it's, it's kind of become part of that because you can't really object, they can't really object to it because... They've said, well, we should be allowed to be anti-Semitic, we should be allowed to be yeah. whatever. So I kind of thought, there it is, it's sort of, I don't really know. What. Then the other thing that happened was, because the story was about me, made up part of the story, was, you know, I was interrogated by his bodyguards for shouting out, but I wasn't chased around Soho and beaten up. But then in between that routine being written and going on telly, Dave Chappelle's bodyguards hospitalised a guy, didn't they? In, uh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, a bloke jumped up on stage, and Dave Chappelle's bodyguards and the other comedians on just kicked him senseless, and he went out in a, in a stretcher, you know. Now, he did have a small knife on him, to be fair, right? Which, again, it seems very American that that would happen. Or not, you know, just we haven't got to the stage yet where... With people who are violent with comedians are not necessarily bringing weapons into the auditorium to attack them. <laughs> so it's kind of, on some level, it was justified. But the thing seemed to take on an extra life of its own. The other weird thing between writing Tornado, uh, Snowflake, and it being recorded was I already had all this stuff about Gervais doing anti-woke stuff. And then that became much more pronounced as well because he'd um, done a lot more specifically anti-trans stuff. So yeah. there's a kind of weird thing where the huge delay of COVID... And of that tour going down for two years meant that because I read a lot of newspapers and I'm, I'm normally a little bit ahead of the curve culturally in where the news is going, the world kind of caught up with the shows almost. And then when they came out, people knew more what I was talking about, mm. whereas normally it looks a bit behind the curve. Certainly yeah. that Richard Hammond thing was years ago. Yeah. But it feels exactly now. Oh, it really does. On, you know. It really does. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you ever hurt yourself on stage doing, I don't mean like with the um, collapsing shark, but like when I saw you do the Ricky Gervais, you can't say that on yeah, stage yeah, thing. Yeah. You would do, there, there's a cut that I discovered the other day that on the one that's on the BBC, <laughs> it's like 10 minutes, right? Yeah, but, but there's a 45 yeah, minute That's not one. real though. Someone's edited that together. Oh, have they? Because I, I couldn't watch the whole thing. It no, it's really, that, it's, I think it's, there's a few times they've done that. Someone on the internet gets my long routines ah, and uses looping to make them an hour, and then people that already hate me or modern <laughs> comedy go, this is literally just a bloke going, ah, for an hour. Who would pay to see this? And I, and I think it really makes me laugh, you know. Because it must be, imagine if you didn't, it would be so infuriating. And it would confirm all your prejudices as well yeah. about, um, but you yeah, know, I do, I mean, th that, I, that routine. It looked of, like you almost, I, yeah. you know, you were, I was worried for you. No, well, I was trying to get myself to a position of discomfort that, so that I had to reach for sounds that were not really within my range or available to me. But, I mean, the, what was, I think what, what did worry people is, like a lot of middle-aged men, I had a particularly difficult uh, lockdown and <laughs> put on a lot of weight and drank too much. And at the point that came to be filmed, I was still a bit of a wreck, you know, and I think it, was a, I think it is a worry for people. It's not a pleasant watch because it looks like an out-of-shape, overweight man, probably with high blood pressure, doing something that would probably give him an aneurysm and I'm really glad I don't have to do it anymore because it felt it felt really like on the edge there was also a lot of things of 
jumping off stages and climbing up things that I couldn't really do anymore where I did. But I think it's, I don't think slapstick's funny really, unless the audience think there is some risk. You know, they're partly, they're sick, aren't they? Like people that go to the, uh, the, the circus in ancient Rome, they kind of want the risk to be real. Some way. Yeah, I mean, in a way that going back to the Dave Chappelle, Barry White thing, yeah, yeah. I thought when you were doing that, because also it was an, it seemed to be an improvised, the, the thing oh, you were doing about every the night. rotisserie yeah. chicken, yeah, yeah, yeah. drink the rotisserie yeah, yeah, chicken yeah, yeah, for yeah. the... Well, it depends drink. like what the audience, how far you could go with it, you know, where the yeah. lights were. But I thought, I, I, I actually felt in the same way, I felt the same worry yeah. sort of for you, because I know that at, at the moment that's, it's right on the edge. Yeah, but I mean, it's sort of, that's an important thing about listening to the room, you know, and that's why, I mean, I wish I'd been able to see Dylan in um, in the theatres on this current tour because, uh, you know, I know it's really hard to, to read. Any room above 2,000, to me, it's quite hard to read it. Mm. And whereas with that rotisserie chicken bit, <laughs> you know, if I could hear someone laughing, one person would be enough to push it and then eventually that would build. But it's hard, when you know, if you do... I, I, well, I don't do. I did the, a massive arena in Glasgow one year, and I just thought it's not doable for me because I, I have to hear the room, and I'd like to yeah. have seen him in a place where he could hear the room. Well, he, there's a, a real spectrum of venues on this last tour yeah. because I saw him twice at the Palladium. Then a couple of days later, he's in Nottingham playing a proper arena. Yeah, I saw that he was playing in Dublin, and I was talking to a friend of mine who we'd done a tour in Dublin. And we thought, well, he's probably playing at that two thousand seater that we played at. Oh no, he's playing at the much much bigger place. Oh really? Yeah, right, right. and so it's yeah. a huge variety of the numbers yeah. of people he's pitching it to. I mean, I kind of think there's a there is a sort of a cut off point of you know when 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 bands become stadium bands. They inevitably yeah. become bland on some level. It's not even their fault because they're trying to get a whole load of people to have to respond to enormous gestures. Yeah. You know, and it's difficult to... Well, then it becomes about the screens, doesn't it? It becomes about the screens, becomes, yeah. I mean, I, I, that Neil Young, uh, Hyde Park yeah. thing you mentioned, I, I was maybe at the same one, 2014 yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I was I was fairly close, but you just mm. you look at the screens. Just but also just it, at Wembley, I saw him a couple of times at Wembley, uh, yeah. and there were no screens. This is Dylan. Yeah. And uh, both times were just... Soulless, miserable. Yeah, I saw Dylan at Wem, uh, or Docklands, I think, and that was just. Uh, yeah. I've been really lucky that five or six times I've seen him. Most of them have been outdoors or in places where you could get a feel for it. But the Docklands was just terrible. Yeah. Yeah, and, terrible. And but I always wonder, you know, does he go into the office and they say, "Well, this is Bob. This is the new yeah. tour." And uh, does he not ask? Are they soulless caverns? Because- well, if it's anything like what happens to me, is I, uh, I, I don't like doing those rooms of, that are long and thin with bad acoustics but and I and also I have hearing aids now so it's difficult for me to even I can't really it's difficult for me I get, always end up with tinnitus in those kind of rooms mm. but you know they go well look if you do these three then you can do 20 that aren't like that because right. those three will help to pay the overheads for that you know so there's all those decisions which I'm sure you know I, I mean I think I think Ticket prices for mainstream acts have gone insane. It's partly the government's fault because they refused to intervene in the tickets out things. Sazi Javid, when he was culture secretary, was offered an opportunity to do that and said the only people that cared about ticket pricing were the chattering middle classes and that tickets outs were legitimate entrepreneurs that should be encouraged. <laughs> really? Yeah. And, uh, you know, try telling that to a dad who's trying to get a ticket for some pop group that his 12 year old likes and it's gone up to 300 quid, you know, it's yeah. out of order. But, um, I think the ticket prices are insane for these big things. But with Dylan, obviously, there's going to be like a big entourage of people on the road. He doesn't appear to live anywhere at the moment. <laughs> so, just the know, bus. Just, yeah. yeah. 
If you were going to open for Dylan, which one of your shows or routines do you think would be the most, okay, that's silly, but would be the most Dylan-esque? Well, I, I, it, just, it just kind of never happened because you can't, it's really hard opening for bands. I, I open but you for said the, that, you know, comics used to open for oh, bands. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. I, I toured I, about four years ago when I was making this film about the Nightingales, I I did open for them, the Birmingham post-punk band, because when I was, when the alternative comedy was starting in the 80s, if you didn't live in London, the only place you saw the alternative comedy was when the alternative comedians opened for bands, you know, and mm. I saw... You know, Phil Jupiter certainly for Billy Bragg and Peter Richardson from the comic strip opening for Dexys 40 years ago. Wow. 40 years ago this month. And Ted Chippington opening for The Four. And so I, so I did it for the Nightingales, but then their audience kind of understood that because they would rem- they remembered those days. It was just about mm. 15 minutes I could do, mm. you know, but it's really difficult. You wouldn't wish it on anyone. I've seen a lot of people opening for bands thinking it would be great and it's just it's a different dynamic. Do you sometimes choose which of your shows have intervals and which don't? Because I've seen you about three or four times and sometimes you've gone right through and the la- certainly the 2016 show and the current yeah. show are very divided down the middle and they make a real point. Well, I guess it's really like I used to... When I was doing Little Art Centres 2005 to about 2010, I'd write out an hour-long show and have a support act. Mm. Then those hour-long shows started to... As they got more improvisational, they'd run to like 90 minutes, which was too long. So you'd, And it, people would get really restless. So then I yeah. stopped having support acts and tried to find breaks in them. But yeah, the current two, this and the last show, and the one before actually, mm. the last three shows, which have both run about two hours, two and a half hours, I've thought really carefully about where the interval goes. And I do, like you said, I do try to do uh, structural things. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a structure you seem to be embracing. Yeah, that have yeah. like the invite comparison between them all, you know, so I do think about it. Um, so Snowflake and Tornado on, on BBC iPlayer yeah. are edited versions, are they, into one? No, they're both they're, they're both an hour. They were okay. both ran to about an hour on the night, yeah. Because um, that works well too. Yeah, yeah. It just interests me which which shows, because, you, you know, you, you refer to the second half, you refer to the back to the first half, you yeah, say yeah. it's going to be the interval of a minute, and yeah. it, it seems to have a structure that you're embracing. Well, Snowflake and Tornado was two separate hours, and the idea was I wrote it like that because, you know, it's really hard to get... I, I wanted to... I wanted to... I'd written loads of two or three hour long shows, and I wrote... 24 half-hour shows to the BBC I thought I'll just write some hours again because the, yeah. the shape will be different it'll be good fun and then uh, but all, all the other shows are normally are a whole thing with an interval you know mm. but you want the whole thing to feel like a piece and I, I hope this current one feels like a piece uh, that all sticks together because it's sort of supposed to be but no one's really written about it being, but it, it is to me, but well, maybe... At the risk know. of sounding contrived, it reminds yeah. me a little bit of Dylan's, you know, electric tour of 66, where he did the acoustic half, took the interval, uh, came yeah. out and went, fuck you, I'm going to pick a fight with you now. Well, uh, uh, well, that is what I'm trying to do, although not I'm, uh, the first half of the current tour, um, trying to do kind of 20 minutes of the sort of stuff you might see on a topical comedy show that mm. people say that I can't do. I'm just doing it to show that I can do it, but I've chosen not to. Yeah. And then set up the idea of what the second half's going to be, which is really sort of hour-long experiment in in sort of looking at how you talk to an audience, really, and what that feels like and how honest it is. And it's got room to breathe. Some nights it runs 45 minutes, some nights it's 65. And I, it all depends on what happens in the room. But then it gets back to the point it's supposed to be at. I mean, what it's like. Again, I do get a lot more from music than comedy. I saw that there's this old band like the Bevis Frond who are a bit like a cream crossed with the Mahavishnu Orchestra or something at the moment. And like they'll do a song where there's a kind of half-hour solo of the two guys both playing lead over each other. 
but the audience seem to intuit the point at which it's finished and it goes back to the riff and there's a huge applause like you would get in a jazz gig and I kind of feel as long as you've got the riff either end what you do in the middle you're kind of all right you know that's how I tend to think of it in those terms that makes perfect sense yeah do you remember, did you see Dylan back when he had that pre-recorded uh, announcement oh, at the yeah. beginning? Beatnik, hero of his generation, yeah. hopeless drug addict, yeah, yeah. Jesus freak. Yeah, yeah. So what did you make of that the first time you heard it? Because I thought it was me- hilarious. And I thought it was, I thought it was absolutely brilliant because Dylan fans, everyone has a favorite bit. Lots of people have a least favorite bit. For many people, it is the Jesus freak period. Yeah. Not, not just because of the subject material, but actually he was unfo- anyone that was recording during that period was unlucky. Because the, the, that's the period since the 60s where the sonics of it has dated the worst, you know. Yeah, so yeah. those kind of, and loads of groups in that period, I really would love to get back into it and say to someone, just sort this out, take all that off it. There's probably a brilliant album in there mm. somewhere. But I think he, he made a virtue of all the things that people have said of him as criticisms <laughs> and announced them as if they were strengths. And I I absolutely loved that. And I really, haze really of made me abuse laugh. is my favourite phrase. Yeah. I love what was that it? one. A haze. A haze. Emerged it's... from a haze of substance abuse. Yeah, I know. But to have that as your <laughs> intro is really, really, really funny. I, that was the first time I saw that. Was at the but he made, it part, more, yeah. he made it seem to me more serious and more yeah. difficult to laugh yeah. at. Because remember, he had that weird logo that he used for right. a few years. Right. And there's something about that logo being presented. Yeah, oh, it was a bit it? like it was. It was a bit like a Nazi. So it was a weird <laughs> sort of serious. It, there was yeah. nothing funny ab- yeah. about that logo until you actually sort of saw yeah. through it. Yeah. Like I'm really bad about seeing yeah. through these things. Like yeah. when I when I first heard when I saw the logo and heard that, I thought he's insane. <laughs> he's gone out of his mind now. Yeah, but the, but you know he has a lot of fun, and he's invited yeah, you to have fun yeah. with it. And that last documentary that came out, the school says he won. With so many lies in it and nonsense, I was watched about an hour and a half of it before I thought this is what's <laughs> nonsense. What's going on? And then I watched it again, and I couldn't tell what was real and what wasn't, and I just had to enjoy it for its for what it was. You know, I think it's probably one of the reasons he's been able to carry on being so brilliant for so long. And Marky e. Smith of the Fall did a similar thing, but unfortunately didn't really look after himself well enough to live as long as Dylan has but it creates chaos and confusion around you and that creates a bubble that protects you and allows you to get on with the work there's a psychedelic band the, the 34 elevators and rocky erickson kept going for years and i interviewed him on two different occasions and you know there, there was a period where he was saying that he, he was you know talking aliens were talking to him and he was possessed by the devil and he had had mental health problems but i do also think that he would just rather say those things than have to answer stupid questions about the past or how did you think of that idea. And then it, it just created this caricature that enabled him to just carry on in privacy, which is what he obviously craved more than anything. You know, Dylan's created this web of confusion about him. Also, the idea that he doesn't know what he's doing and he's not capable of playing the songs properly. He could do whatever he wants, clearly. He's obviously cho- he's, he's choosing to do these things, so we have to uh, respect them on some level. Is It Rolling Bob Talking Dylan is recorded back home in Studio 3 at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Roisin King and produced by Robin Guise. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. You see me on the street, you always act surprised. You say, how are you? Good luck. But you don't mean it. When you know, as well as me, you'd rather see me paralyzed. Why don't you just come out once and scream it? <laughs>